Okay, well, let's pray and we'll start our Systematic Theology 2 semester term here. Lord, we are thankful that we can come and learn from your word. We can be guided by it to have right theology, to have correct theology, to know the truth. Help us to know the person of Christ today even better than we thought we did. What is often a, a difficult doctrine for us to understand should not be hard to believe what we see in Scripture, though, Lord. And so give us a passion for it, a desire for theology in general, but especially on this important doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. May our time be blessed. May we be enriched and use what we learn to apply to our lives and live more holy, more godly before you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, well, we are studying Christology and Systematic Theology too. We'll also be studying Pneumatology. And I was just talking to the Ibarras, and they said they arrived at our church six years ago when I started teaching through Systematic Theology too at Pneumatology. And so I did teach this six years ago, but how much our church has grown and been blessed since then is amazing to me. And I didn't have PowerPoint slides back then. I just stood up in that old building and stood at the front and read out of the book and talked about it. Much different now, thankfully, but we're also studying after pneumatology. We're studying the, the doctrines of man and sin, and those will then lead us into the next study, which will start in the fall, on soteriology. And so soteriology is such a big topic that we're going to spend a whole semester on it, and that's going to feel rushed. And then next spring, Lord willing, if we're all still here, if I'm still here, we'll do the doctrine of the church, and the doctrine of the end times. And I think we'll squeeze angelology in there probably right before we do some of those. So that'll cover all the ologies that are being taught in systematic theology, which we'll look at the 10 ologies, the 10 topics of theology in just a moment. Before that, I have a book giveaway as we're starting a new class today. I always want to give away books. So this is Costi Hens, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. This is important because the prosperity gospel is everywhere. It's everywhere around here. There used to be a, a church just across the highway with a big cross. They were prosperity gospel. And they were saying they were prosperity gospel. There's a lot of churches that teach prosperity gospel that wouldn't say it, but they are prosperity. We used to be next to one when we were across the highway. They office right next to us. So for this book giveaway... I just ask a question. Usually it's about something I've recently taught, but since this is a, a fresh start on systematic theology too, I don't want to ask what I just taught yet. So I'm going to have to ask something in general or about what I'm about to teach. So let's do a general question and just raise your hand real quick if you know the answer, okay? So you're about to find out the answer in today's class, but it's a somewhat general question too. What book of the New Testament has the most about the deity of Christ. What book in the New Testament has the most about the deity of Christ? John. John. You got it. Here you go. God, greed, and the prosperity gospel. Read it. Pass it on to somebody who needs it. The gospel of John. You remember when I taught on the doctrine of God and his attributes? What books did I say would have the most in regards to those? Anybody Remember? Psalms, Exodus, and Isaiah. Now you could argue there are other books, and there is. There's plenty. But those are where most of the citations for God's attributes come from. We're going to find today that the Gospel of John, and really all of John's writings, are the most often cited for the deity of Christ. By the time we're done with theology, all the books of the Bible will be used, of course. But even Song of Solomon, you can use to talk about God's plan for marriage when we get to that. So, all right, well, so let's back up a bit and review. What is systematic theology? I gave you a lot of definitions last semester. What does the whole Bible teach about a given topic? That's really the, the shortest, clearest definition. We're talking about one topic, one question, and we a we're asking, what does the whole Bible say about this topic? And you can also add in relation to other topics. So, Joel Beakey here and Smalley, they say it is an organized and comprehensive presentation of the whole counsel of God. So it's really a, a research effort. If you were doing this, if you were writing a book or presenting your own study from scratch, you would ask a question and then go through all the verses on that. So that's going to take a long time, of course. 
we shortcut it a bit by trusting in others to help us with that. But we always, of course, check the scriptures ourselves. So this is all it really is. It's not some philosophical thing. A lot of modern theology is philosophical. If you went to the, if there was a bookstore that, that sold books like this in the area, and you went to the theology section, you would find, and Half Price Books kind of has a lot of this, you would find speculative, philosophical type of theology. Or sort of critical theology where it's, was Jesus really God? And that's what the whole book would be about. Systematic theology, true godly systematic theology, is, it comes from the Bible. It's, it's the Bible speaking on a topic, and then you or whoever's organizing the lesson or the book is taking all of those and putting them together. So, for example, John Piper's book on the providence of God. We have it in our bookstore. It's a big red book about that thick. He says how he came up with all that he's teaching in that book. He took every verse in the Bible. Actually, he had some research students do it. Every verse in the Bible on the providence of God and God's sovereignty. And it was hundreds of verses. And then he took it and whittled it down a bit. And then he began to organize it. Okay, what does this say about God's providence? And he put it in sections and those became chapters of his book. And then, of course, he explained those verses and put it together. So that's an example of doing systematic theology. There are other types of theology that you might hear in the church. Exegetical theology, or what's just called exegesis. This is getting into the text, usually a verse or a passage. This is what the preacher does if they're preaching expositionally. They are studying the meaning of a biblical text. So this is deriving the authorial meaning, the author's intent of a biblical text based on sound hermeneutical principles, biblical languages, and biblical background. So this is taking that information and saying, okay, what does this text say? What does Romans 11, 1 through 6 say in the context with the historical background, with the, all the background information that Paul is writing in when he writes to Rome about the Jews? And then the languages, that would be Greek in the New Testament and Hebrew in the Old and a little bit of Aramaic. And then hermeneutical principles. These are principles that help us to interpret the text of the Bible so we don't twist it. Biblical theology is then taking a doctrine maybe through one author or one of his books. So we might say, what is Paul's theology in Romans regarding election? So we've, we've not looked at the whole Bible on that question, just the book of Romans. Or others have written on Paul's theology in all of his letters. So what is Paul's theology of the conscience in all of his letters? Now, we know that's God's theology ultimately, but we're just looking at one author and how he describes it and teaches it. Or you could do biblical theology by tracing marriage from Genesis to Revelation. What does the Bible say on this one topic in a progressive way from the beginning through the end? That's progressive. But we wouldn't want to skip around and throw all the verses in there together. That's systematic theology. So biblical theology is progressive through the Bible or just looking at one author's doctrine in his writings, but it's also progressive from beginning of Romans, for example, to the end of Romans. Historical theology is then looking at what people in church history have taught on theology. What have people in church history taught? You'll hear us talk a lot about church history. I'll quote people from church history in sermons. I love church history. It helps us to not go off track too far in one direction or the other. What has church history said about this topic? And that can be really helpful because many of these things have been debated. And if we know the debates, if we know what the result was, then that can really help us. For example, Augustine and Pelagius, they were debating over whether God is sovereign in salvation. On whether man can save himself or God must do it for him. And Augustine said, God will do it. God does do it. Pelagius said, no, no. We can do it ourselves. In fact, if you're good enough, you don't even need the cross of Christ to be saved. You can do it yourself. And so that was Pelagius. And so that battle was for the minds of the people in the early 400s in the church. And you can imagine had Pelagius sort of won the day. And he did for a little while. But over time, what that would have meant for the church. The same with Christology. We're going to see some heresies in a few weeks. And I'm going to cover those in one class you're going to see that these have all been debated since early, early in the church. 
And yet somebody will wake up tomorrow probably in the world and say they had a dream where some angel came and brought golden plates or whatever, you know, met them in a cave and gave them a new doctrine that Christ is not God. That happens all the time. That's where cults come from. In fact, all the cults Frank and I taught on this last summer, almost all of them are denying the deity of Christ. Historical theology helps with that. Then practical theology is once we take our systematic theology and apply it into practice in the church. How do we worship? What kind of sermon should we preach? How do we do biblical counseling? How should we do evangelism? How do we explain the gospel? And on and on when it comes to practical theology. What does this look like to live a godly marriage based on the word of God and what it teaches on marriage? So it can flush out in all these different ways. Ethics. What's the right thing to do in this situation? You know, they didn't charge me for this at the grocery store. Should I go back and tell them that? Should I just not worry about it? What should I do in this situation? That's an ethical question. So here it is drawn out. This is, I think, Abner Chow is the the first one I saw do this. It's pretty common to look at it this way. So at the very bottom of this pyramid are the, the basic building blocks. You need to know the languages, biblical background, and hermeneutics. Not everybody needs to know that. But the, those who are getting the deepest into the theology and teaching it, teaching it in the church, need to know that. You know the problem with the American church is they said, you know, most of this is for seminaries. We're not going to worry about this in the church. We're going to be practical. We're going to tell stories. And then we're just going to tell you exactly 15 ways that you can buy flowers for your wife or whatever. And that's going to be the practical application. Well, what about checking what you hear from other people and reading books? The, the elders, the pastor, the preacher needs to know these things so they can examine it for themselves. I read a lot of commentaries on Romans. A lot of them disagree with each other. And who's right? You know what most of us do, unfortunately? And I've been guilty of this in the past. Well, we just pick our favorite pastor, our most popular author. He must be right because I like him, you know. He's super reformed. He's like triple R reformed. He must be correct. I went to seminary and learned from him. I, you know, he must be right on that issue. Well, that doesn't determine whether he's right or not. How well he's liked, how many people follow him, how many go to his conference. That doesn't determine whether he's right. What determines it is, has he used the good biblical principles, the languages in the background, to make his case? All right, so when we have those three, we can do exegesis. So the next step up is determining what the text says, the passage, the verse. And then from there, biblical theology. From there, systematic theology. From there, practical theology. You can't just jump in to the top part of the pyramid there. That's what the seeker-friendly church does. That's what a lot of watered-down churches do. They just jump right in to practical. What do we do? I'm not going to bore you with the theology. I'm not going to bore you with the history. I'm just going to jump into putting it into practice. Well, the problem is if you haven't explained what the theology is and where you've gotten it, what are you putting into practice? You know, I was once told, and you've heard this probably, you don't need to learn more. You just need to apply what you've already learned, that kind of idea. Well, maybe if it comes to just basic evangelism, that would be the case. But for the most part, No, we do need to learn more. The Bible's a big book. There's a lot of bad teaching and bad understandings out there. There's a lot of trials we go through. We do need to learn more. And we need to continue to be learning theology and putting it into practice. It's not either or, it's both and. You learn it and then you put it into practice. And the next day you learn it and put it into practice. And on and on that goes throughout your whole life. Now, historical theology is to the side because it's sort of a checking mechanism. As I said, it checks you. You've done this yourself, right? Your friend comes and they say, well, I don't believe in the deity of Jesus. And you're going to prove them wrong. You're going to have an evangelistic or apologetic conversation. You get out all these verses. And then you come to these conclusions from those verses. And you say, am I right or not? Well, let's check with somebody else in church history and see if that's what they came up with. So I'm not completely off the mark. And you might think, oh, you would never be heretical. But you're going to be surprised, especially on Christology, how easy it is to get a little off and be in the heretical camp and not know it. doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. It just means you, you made a mistake as you were explaining something or putting it together. So historical theology checks us. Don't put historical theology somewhere in the pyramid because now you're saying the meaning of Scripture and how we apply it depends upon what somebody said in the past. No, it's a checking mechanism. It's off to the side. It's looking back to where the Holy Spirit worked in men of the past. 
and seeing what they thought about this. But we don't base what we do and what we believe today just on people from the past. That's a checking mechanism. And it is helpful, though. They could get it right, and they often do. I love Charles Spurgeon. 99.9% of the time, he gets it right. And so I love to, to cite him as far as explaining a text or motivating us to obey the text or apply it. But that doesn't mean that we just automatically believe and do everything Spurgeon said. Here are the 10 topics of systematic theology. Bibliology, that's the study of Scripture, Bible. Ology is logical study of something. So biology is the logical study of life. Bibliology is the logical study of the Bible. Theology proper is the study of God. So we did these two last semester. We didn't quite finish the theology proper. I got sick one day, and then we had a guest speaker another day. But I told you, you could go listen to my Roman not, Romans 9 sermons, and you would get the, what were the last two that we didn't get to? God's decree. So there's a lot of talk of God's decree in Romans 9, what he decrees to happen, how that works out. We briefly touched on it and his attributes. And then the problem of evil. The problem of evil. We looked at both in an apologetics class I taught a year ago. I referred you to that one. And also it comes up in Romans 9 at the end where God is talking about how even those who are destined for hell are still being used to glorify him ultimately. All right, here's the ones we're covering this semester. And it's a lot. We've got to, I've got to stay on track. Y'all pray that I don't get sick this time. <laughs> when it comes to Romans, you know, I can just have another guy preach and then pick up next week where I left off. But this class, I, I want to stay on track so we can get everything covered somewhat. So Christology, study of Christ. Pneumatology comes from the Greek word for spirit, pneuma or pneuma. In, in Greek, you say the consonant is pa, pneuma. Today we have pneumatic, what is that called? Machines, pneumatic valves. So pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Anthropology from anthropos for man, the Greek word for man. Most of these are pretty easy, but this number seven, hamartiology. We don't often use this word anymore at all. Um, uh, Hamartia is the Greek word for sin. So there is a study in the Bible on sin. And almost everyone teaches man and sin together, or at least closely connected, right? You don't intertwine them, but you, you teach us man and then you teach on sin. Why? Because where does sin come from, really? It comes from Adam and Eve's fall, of course, and our ongoing sin. And that's important. Before you get to soteriology, you have to understand who man is, what sin is, and even going back, right, who God is. And so angels here can move around depending on the class you're taking, the book you're reading. It's hard to fit this in. Where do you put angels? Is that the creation when you're studying that? It's not really the doctrine of God. It's not really the doctrine of Scripture. Everything else pretty much flows in the way that Romans, for example, might go, right? Who is God and, and what is Scripture? Paul starts out Romans mentioning those just briefly. Then he goes into man and sin, right? That's Romans 1 through 3. Then what is 3 through 8? Salvation, right? Then 9 through 11 is really mostly eschatology as far as Israel. And then the latter part of the book is ecclesiology. But if you think about just the gospel or your own salvation, what, what, is, what is God doing when he brings you to faith? Well, you hear the gospel. And that's in the Bible, that's the preacher preaching. That's the person giving you a book or the Bible to read. And you have to believe that the Bible's true before you're even going to listen to what the Bible says. And of course, we know that comes from God regenerating the heart. Theology proper is who God is. Christology, who Christ is. You got to know something about Christ and what he's done for the sinner. Holy Spirit, you don't really have to know about this to be saved as far as the Holy Spirit's regeneration, but that's happening in your salvation. Angels are, like I said, they can be moved around anywhere. Who are we as men? Who are we as sinners? Then we get saved, then we're brought into the church, and then we began to study. One of those study topics is last thing. So anybody have as one of their favorite topics of theology, one of the yellow ones that we're studying? What do most of y'all like? Oh, we got one in the back. Okay. 
One, one, which one? Christology, yeah. Most of us are going to say soteriology or theology proper. Uh, soteriology, since the Reformation, has been the most commonly studied, biggest topic. It's, it's pretty much every sermon that comes up, it gets taught a lot. And that's good. It's right. But some of these others have been neglected over time. Some were just sort of left in the Catholic Church belief. And the Reformers said, you know, we got enough to work on here. We're not trying to change every single thing. And some of these needed to be tweaked after that. Lately, though, the, well, in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, bibliology was under attack. First, it was that Scripture's not true. Then it was that God didn't write Scripture. Then it was, well, okay, but Scripture's not sufficient. You need something else. And that's what they're talking about up in biblical counseling. This idea in, from psychology that you need something else other than the Bible to help you with your sin problems. And that was under attack. Then it was, again, theology proper. It's kind of a cycle, right? Theology proper was under attack. Who is God? And denying some of God's attributes. Open theism was real popular. Late 90s, early 2000s. God doesn't know the future. God's not all powerful. So they start to mess with God's attributes. Christology has been under attack from the early times of the church, but it also goes in cycles. So that's often, I'll, I'll talk today, Lord willing, about one of the doctrines that is being denied in many cases or forgotten, the eternal generation of the Son. Of course, the Holy Spirit. I mean, doctrine of the Holy Spirit is just really, since the Pentecostal movement started in, in 1903 or 1902, that's been, let's just say, stretched a bit on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And of course, anthropology is completely denied by modern man, evolutionary theory, and so on. And same with sin. Okay, let's get started here on our topic for today. The doctrine of Christ. It's usually divided into two main subjects. The person of Christ. And then you could further divide the person of Christ into two other subjects. His deity and his humanity. And then the second major study is the work of Christ. Now much of the work of Christ is covered in soteriology as well the doctrine of salvation and how that applies to us. But we can't forget that when we're studying Christ, we need to consider the work that he did and the work that he does. And not all of his work is related to soteriology. There is work of providence that he's doing, upholding all things and so on that we need to study. But most of Christology is on the person of Christ, rightly so, because there's so much attacks, so many attacks on this. And today, it's, it's usually on the deity of Christ. There have been times in church history where those have denied the humanity, especially early on, the Gnostics and so on. There are some today that still deny the humanity, but for the most part, people reject that Jesus Christ is God. Or they'll say he became God. He wasn't God, and Bart Ehrman, a popular liberal, so-called liberal Christian, will say that he, he wasn't God, but he became God. Or the, the, the apostles made him God in a sense they called him God. So that's where most attacks come today because modern society doesn't want to believe or they don't like to believe in the miraculous. They don't like to believe in God, that God would come down and walk among us and so on. So let's look now at the deity of Christ. The first thing to talk about, and this comes up first thing in the book as well on this chapter, is his Trinitarian pre-existence. So if you're looking at the doctrine of Christ, the best way to organize it is to begin with the fact that he's always existed. Before he took on flesh, before the incarnation. And Frank went over much of the Trinity last week, and I'm thankful he did. He had those ready from a previous class. And so he was able to do that for me because I wasn't able to prepare due to funeral and so on that previous week. But these are the three main points that I just want to remind you of. We won't look up these now. But his divine nature. If the Bible says that he is divine, that means he's God. John 1.1 1, 1 clearly says that. Philippians 2.6 says that. So we'll look at John 1 in a minute. Philippians 2.6 needs its own class. And so that's in the schedule. By the way, you should have gotten an email with the schedule. If you didn't, just let me know and I'll send you one. Let me know by emailing me or signing up for the class from the email I sent out. 
I'll have some printed next week too to lay around, put out for you guys. The kenosis, that's February the 11th. I'm going to do a class on that. And that's where I'm going to take, not exceptions to the book, but I, I want to bring some clarity that I think, I think the book can be a bit confusing on that. And I'll tell you why that is and why we changed our doctrinal statement a couple of years ago to make it more clear why Grace Community Church and the Master Seminary also did the same thing with their doctrinal statement. Because the kenosis is a challenging doctrine to clearly get right. And we don't want to be teaching heresy, obviously, on that. We weren't before, but it just wasn't as clear as it is now as far as our doctrinal statement. So he's divine in nature. He also shared the divine glory. John 17, 5 says, Who else can share the glory of God than God? Only God can have the glory of God. So again, pointing us to the fact that Jesus is divine. And we could say Christ is divine. Usually we want to be careful to use the word Jesus, the name Jesus, before his incarnation. Because technically he's not Jesus until the incarnation, but he is the Christ and the Son of God. Jesus is his human name. Christ, the divine name, means Messiah. It's not wrong to say that, but typically we want to put those together. So if we're going to say Jesus existed before the incarnation, we really want to say Jesus Christ existed before the incarnation. It's not a big deal, but to be historically accurate. The exact representation of the essence of deity is a third point here. We want to understand and realize that the Bible doesn't cloud the waters. It's not muddy here on is Christ God or not. It says he's the exact representation of the essence of deity. That just means he has the same nature as the Father. He is God. Hebrews 1.3, Colossians 1.15. Again, we'll look at these in a minute, just looking at his deity, but I wanted to just review the Trinitarian pre-existence of Christ. So let's go into some more detail. Let's look at these passages on Christ's pre-existence. The Bible says that he came from heaven. So the only two beings that could come from heaven are either angels or God. So let's see what it says about Jesus. Remember, what's the book that teaches us the most about the deity of Christ in the New Testament and the whole Bible? John. And you're going to see a lot of John. And if it's not John, then it's 1 John or Revelation. So God sent his son from wherever God is. And typically we think of God's special presence as in heaven. So he came down is what the Bible often uses. He came down to earth. He who comes from heaven. So he has a right to, to speak on the things of God and to be heard. He's come from heaven. He's come down. So what does that tell us? Christ came from heaven. God sent his son, the Messiah, the Christ to earth. That's enough right there to be done with Bart Ehrman's bad theology. I mean, you don't need a PhD from Harvard or Yale or Princeton or whatever he got to disprove his theories. See, he said that Jesus was just a man and that at some point later they started calling him God. And so that is where he gets the title of his book, Jesus Became God or When Jesus Became God. But all you need right there is just a few verses to see that's not true. That guy is, is wrong. He's got a completely wrong theology. One verse is enough here. He came from heaven. He wasn't just a man born on the earth and then later gets adopted by God. That is not how it works at all. He speaks of himself as coming down and so do others. He existed before creation. So obviously if he's God, he existed before creation. But again, we're, we're building the case from Scripture. You've probably been in maybe some situations where somebody says, well, I believe what I believe and you believe what you believe. Take them to the Bible. People love to keep it from, from the Bible and just talk about what you believe and I believe. Then it's a difference of opinion and everybody knows we can agree to disagree and so on. The, the news loves this when they interview Christians and stuff or pastors that go on the news. They want to make it about two ideas going back and forth, right? And when when they start citing the Bible, they'll often leave that out of news articles and stuff because now you're taking it to Scripture. God's commands for marriage and what marriage is and what the Word says about homosexuality. Have you ever read those articles where it just says, well, this is a pastor and he believes this and he believes that. But he's just, he's just reemphasizing what's in Romans 1. 
Even people in our circles will do this. They'll say, well, a lot, that's just John MacArthur. That's just R.C. Sproul. And, you know, I don't have to agree with him. Well, if he's saying what the Bible says, then you do. You got to check that, but you do. So if, if he brought things into being, he must have existed before they came into being, right? So if he made the world, he must have existed before it was created, before the foundation of the world. I mean, why do people deny the deity of Christ? It's right there in Scripture. If they deny it, it's because they're unbelievers, right? They don't believe the Bible. If they say they're Christians, they have to believe it. So if he chose us before the foundation of the world, he must have existed before the foundation of the world. Of course, that's speaking of the Father, but if, he, if the Father chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world, the Son also must have existed. So through him, all things have been created. So he created, he, he laid the foundation. He existed, obviously, before creation. There's no one else existing before creation but God. Therefore, Jesus must be God. He's also eternal. There's one coming from Israel, basically, one of the tribes of Israel. He's going to go forth, but he's also from long ago, from eternity past. Speaking of the fact that he's eternal, eternal father, in the sense that he's over his offspring, which are all those who are believers. Christ is is like that. He's the first, he's the foremost, and he's eternal. At Christmas, we're singing these songs, hymns, Christmas songs. The whole world's singing it. They don't realize they're singing about the deity of Christ, but it's amazing. I am, that's related to God's name from the book of Exodus. I am always existing is the idea. Yahweh, I am, the verb I am in Hebrew is very much connected to his name, Yahweh. He's always existing. Present tense, I am, because he's always existing, always has existed, always will exist. Revelation 1.8, Jesus here speaking to John I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter in the Greek alphabet, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and the end. He says, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, this concept of always eternally existing, Alpha and Omega. And then 22, <clears throat> 13. So the beginning of Revelation, the end of Revelation here, we have this same doctrine being taught 22:13 I am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end As far as you can go in both directions he's saying I've always existed I am God and these things are going to come to pass that I've just told you about because I'm God So now the question comes up Here's where some debate happens Did Christ always exist as son Christians have sometimes disagreed on this has Christ always existed as son or did he just get called son, labeled son, when he takes on flesh, when he is in Mary's womb, when he is put there, of course, created by the Holy Spirit, the, the humanity side, of course, the humanity of Christ. And so the two different views are incarnational sonship and eternal sonship. Incarnational sonship, it's really a minority view that he became the son. It should be the son there. He became the son at the point of submission, which is his incarnation. So they would reason that, look, he can't submit when he's the son of God in deity only because the God doesn't submit to God, right? God has one will. But when he took on flesh, now in his humanity, he can't submit. The humanity can submit to God the Father. So therefore, at that point, he becomes a son because they reason sons have to submit to the Father. That's obvious and so on. The other view is eternal sonship. He was always considered the son. He's called the son even in his pre-incarnational state. Now, the interesting thing is, for a little while, John MacArthur taught the first view. And then I don't remember... Maybe Terry remembers who, who corrected or at some point he realizes, no, no, that's not correct. And he puts out an official statement saying, you know, I, I taught wrongly on this. That was a minor thing, right? It's just a matter of when you're talking about the pre-incarnate Christ, which does come up if you do a lot of Old Testament teaching and preaching, but he's mostly in the New Testament. And so he puts out a, a statement at some point, early 90s, maybe 80s. 
70s? Wasn't too far into his ministry. So anyway, he says, you know, I believe in eternal sonship. And so that's what you'll see mostly in the book. But they do at least cover this other view because it's out there. So back in the dinosaur days. (laughs) But again, this wasn't a, like a deeply held belief. It was more of a, the way he spoke about it when it came up. And we've all, we've all done that, right? We've said things and later we're like, oh, I've learned so much since then. I would never say that again. Or I wouldn't say it that way. Like the analogies on the Trinity, right? It's like ice and water and vapor. Hopefully from Frank's teaching, y'all, y'all have realized that's, that's not a good analogy, right? Or the three-leaf clover. Biblical doctrine. If Jesus' sonship signifies his deity and absolute equality with the Father, it cannot be a title that pertains only to his incarnation. So this is from your book. And it's just summarizing. I mean, we could, we could go through and look at all the Old Testament passages, but he is son before the incarnation, which means there's something other than just his submission to the Father going on. That, that's not the, what the sonship entails when it comes to the Trinity. In fact, this comes up now early on in church history at the Council of Nicaea. They're, they're discussing this question that has arisen in the church on Christ's deity. So the, the true believers held that Christ is the Son of God and preexisted before his incarnation. And there were others out there called the Arians. And the Arians were saying, after Arius, that he is not God, but he's, he's like God. And so they had this big council. It wasn't forced upon them by Constantine. But since he's the emperor and he calls himself a Christian, he says in 325, or before that, but they come together in 325, he says, y'all come together and get this problem settled. I don't like my empire that I just put together and conquered all these other emperors and put it all together. And now you're going to divide over theology? Get this stuff figured out. So they meet, and there were three views. Heterousios is Greek for other. So this would say that the son is not God. He is, he is different, of a different nature, of a different substance than the father. So the father's God, but the son is something different. Homoousios is the same. Homo means same. And so homoousios in Greek, which is what they all spoke at this time in the Roman Empire, homoousios is of the same substance. And then homoousios is similar substance. So Arius, we often think he denied the deity of Christ. And he did. But the way he did it was very subtle. He didn't just say, oh, Jesus is not God. He said, he's he's kind of like God. He's kind of like God, but he's not like God. And in Greek, you know, this is just one letter. And it's the smallest letter. It's the iota in Greek. And so theologians and church historians like to say, the, the doctrine of Christ that the church would believe after this and its creeds came down to one tiny letter in the Greek alphabet. So what's the right view? Well, the right view is the second one there. Homoousios. He's the same substance. So they all agreed on that. All the pastors, they were called priests at this time, but they were basically pastors of the churches, came together, the bishops, and they agreed on that all over the Roman Empire. And they affirmed homoousios for the nature of Christ. He is of the same substance as the Father. In other words, they're saying Jesus is God. Jesus always has been God. Jesus always will be God. Jesus is God. The deity of Christ was affirmed here. 50, 60, 70 years would go by before the the Roman Empire, the churches actually all believe this because Arianism was so embedded. That's what they did, by the way. This is a bit of church history, but I like to talk about it. The way Arius went around is he didn't go around teaching the Bible. He made up these little songs and his followers made these songs to teach kids that Jesus was not God. And they had the, these little rhyme schemes. And he would go from place to place. And his followers uh, over time would spread out and go. And they would get the popular teaching through songs and so on across. And it was based on emotion. It was based on getting that stuck in your head. I'm not making an analogy to modern Christian songs. But I think there's, there is a similarity there. In that you get to the hearts of people often. And the minds of people through music. And... If you get your music out there enough, it can start to sway what people believe. Like certain stations that are called themselves Christian music. And all the theology they teach isn't all that Christian. 
Okay, moving on. So, Council of Nicaea. And in their statement, they spoke about this eternal sonship issue. It was phrased a little different back then. But here's the Nicene Creed. So, they, they came up with a creed. It gets modified in 381, but originally it came out in 323. So, this is old, but people are still debating this issue today. Here's how it starts. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made. They go on to eventually add the Holy Spirit as well. So they get the whole Trinitarian idea here in the creeds as they come out, the Nicene, the Chalcedonian, and so on. But what I want to show you here is how they really try to describe precisely the deity of Christ. And they say he, he's one. He's the Lord. His human name, Jesus. His divine name, Christ. And he's the only begotten Son of God. The only begotten speaks of his eternal generation from the Father. We'll come back to that. Born of the Father. That's what only begotten means. What does it mean that Jesus was eternally born of the Father? Spurgeon said, you know, that this, this, this doctrine in here is too much for our minds. It's really hard to get our minds around. And you're going to find that with Christology. I think the attributes of God have a couple of attributes that are hard to get our minds around. But Christology is really challenging. Because he's the only one that is fully God and fully man. And to conceptualize that and to get that explained in human terms is very difficult. So anyway, they're, they're writing this originally in Greek. They write this, and notice the word begotten. It comes up twice. What they're trying to show there is that he is not just the same substance. Of course he is. That's consubstantial. Same substance with the Father. Not only is he God from God, light from light, all the things that describe God. But there is a distinction in the persons of the Trinity. So there's the Father and there's the Son. And the way that they describe this relationship is only begotten. So that brings us into what is only begotten. And this is called the, the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. It's one of the harder doctrines. There's a couple that come up, as I said. The next one will be hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is a, a difficult doctrine. And that means more people are going to debate about it. But Psalm 2.7, here it is in the Old Testament. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now this gets picked up in the New Testament. Not only the you are my son, which, which is said multiple times to Jesus from the sky, from God, to the son on the earth. But it's also quoted here, this psalm is in Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1.5, and Hebrews 5.5. 5. And it's clear that in Hebrew, the Hebrews passages, that the writer is making the argument, this is said of the son. This is said of the son. So, Psalm 2.7 is in the Old Testament. Was Christ... In the flesh, when Psalm 2-7 was written? No. Who wrote, who wrote Psalm 2? Was it David? I think it's David, right? David, a thousand years before Christ. So Christ has not taken on flesh. And already he's called the Son. Now people say, well, this is looking forward to when he does take on the flesh. No, he's already Son, and that's why this can be written. And I'm not sure, a lot. the people who read it, from David's hand as he wrote it and put it out there and they sang it. They wouldn't have understood all the theology we now have in the New Testament. That helps us to understand this. But God inspired David to write this. And it is speaking of the Son. That's clear. Speaking of Christ from Acts 13, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5. Okay, now let's go forward. The, the book here says the begetting here mentioned in Psalm 2 and all the cross-references has nothing to do with the origin of either his deity or his humanity. This is not talking about that as the Son of God, he had to be born to become the Son of God. Or that he had to take on flesh. That's not the discussion here. And too many people have gone that direction. Well, begetting means having a child. So this must be he became God or he took on flesh. That's not what's being discussed here. It has everything to do with him sharing the same essence as the Father. So this is a way for us to understand, although we've made a mess of it, in church history, I think, often. There, there are clear teachings on it, of course, but 
this is a way for God to explain to us the Trinity. That this, how the Son relates to the Father. The problem is, like we do in theology often, we try to inject what we're used to here on earth back into God. And it doesn't work. He's not talking about birth so much. Here it is in John 1.14. And your translation may have changed this. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll look at the Greek word here in a minute, but the, the King James, which is usually thought of as the first English translation, it wasn't, but it was just following the ones that came before it, had the only begotten. And for a long time, only begotten was all we knew in English. Then in the 1900s, Scholars got together, conservative, biblical scholars, evangelical scholars, reform scholars even. And they said, uh, really, this word just means only. And let's, let's just cut it to only in the New Testament and the Old Testament because this begotten stuff just really confuses people and it causes all this controversy and we don't really understand it. And so many translations went to only. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Let's look at the rest of the verses. John 1.18. So it's important to John. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So clearly he is God, and clearly this is relating to his deity. Understanding it is a bit of more of a challenge. The only begotten God. How can God be begotten? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Right? Many of you probably memorized this when you were younger at some point. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Again, John three eighteen. So what is this? Four times John's used this? He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here is John again, 1 John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. 5, 18. We know that no one who has been born of God sins, but he who was begotten of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. All these are in reference to Christ. So the Greek word here for only begotten is monogenes monogenes. And the, the debate is, does it just mean the only one or does it mean the origin of one's offspring? Like begetting. So there's, mono means only. It means one. So that's not under debate. It's the genes part. What does genes mean? Is this coming into existence? Is this begetting? There's a lot of Greek words that sound like this and they don't have until recently a lot of studies on this in the Greek language. Now, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, it is just speaking of Isaac as Abraham's only child. So there you can say, oh, well, that's his only child, but he's also the offspring. So it really fits both of these definitions. Uh, this becomes not a, not a big debate like people are calling each other heretics or anything, but it becomes an issue. Wayne Grudem in, I think it was a second edition. What's the newest Wayne Grudem out? Does anybody know? Third? His sec second edition, he has a whole write-up at the end saying, we shouldn't translate monogenes as only begotten. It doesn't make sense. That's not the best translation. All this research. So for years, people, pastors, pastors I know, have cited that and said, look, it shouldn't be only begotten. It should just be only. It's the only one of his kind. It means he's the only son. Forget the begotten part. But then a guy comes along probably seven, eight years ago, ten years ago, and he digs into all these old Greek resources outside of the Bible. Because it's only used these few times in the Bible that I've cited. And so he goes in and he shows, opposite than Grudem, Grudem was saying, well, look, this is only used for only. That's the only son. But this guy, Charles Lee Irons, he goes out and he does all this extensive research with computers and everything. And he shows that it's often used to talk about the only one, yes, but the only offspring the only offspring of a father or mother. So, third edition of Grudem's Systematic Theology comes out. He says, hey, I changed my mind. I looked at all this evidence. I saw him at the, a conference here in 2015 or 16, say it in front of the whole audience of scholars. He said, I've changed my mind on this. This guy, Lee Irons right here, he convinced me with all of his scholarship. And so now people are saying we shouldn't take begotten out. That is what it means. And let me give you three good reasons to leave it in your Bibles. The LSB has only begotten for this reason. It's used in extra biblical literature. So that's what this guy Charles Lee Irons proved 
with all of his study. Now, people have questioned it later, but he makes a really good case. Lots of articles. We're not going into all the details on it. Secondly, it's used in the Nicene Creed. And they spoke Greek and understood Greek. And they wrote the Nicene Creed in Greek, and they use monogenes like it's used in the Bible, which was written, the New Testament was written in Greek. It's also there in 381 AD when they add to the Nicene Creed and, and sort of republish it. And who better understands the Greek language than the original Greek speakers? So even though we might struggle with the concept, and maybe they did too, they put it in there. And we don't want to use the, lose the distinction in translation. Yes, he is the only son. But what's, what's John getting at when he keeps putting this word in there? There are other Greek words for only. He could use just a plain uh, monos or, or monon or so on to say only. So he could have done that. He put monogenes in there. Yeah, because there, the emphasis on that he's only, and I think they're trying to get away from the eternal generation of the son idea. But you could put it back in there. It wouldn't be wrong. I think the King James has, has it in there. But there it's clear we're talking about a physical son, physical offspring. So he's both, right? He's the only son and he's the only begotten, right? Physically birthed offspring. That doesn't work for Christ. We're not talking anything about his physical nature. We're not talking about his deity. The best we can do is describe this as, and this doesn't help us, but this is what theologians say, the eternal procession of the Father. What does that mean? It means they share the same substance. And if you want to go into more details on that, you're going to have to pick up an in-depth book. This book does not even go into a lot of detail on it. Certain seminary professors often just say, you know, here's what it is, and it's not a big deal. Let's move on. I, I think it's important. It's in the Bible. I think it's hard for us to get our mind around. There are ways to define it even in more detail, but I'm not going to spend six classes on that. So, so here it is in the Nicene Creed again. They knew what they were talking about when they put it in there. They thought it supported their argument. And I think that's a strong argument to use it today. Okay, we'll stop there. Next week, we'll start with the Old Testament appearances of Christ. We'll go into the Old Testament prophecies of Christ and continue on through your schedule that I emailed you out. If you pre-read, it'll help. Like I said, I add to sometimes what the book says. Sometimes I reorganize it. Occasionally, very occasionally, I disagree. But it's on minor things. And I'll show you where those are. Not too much on Christology. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what you've shown us today, reminded us of that your Son is God. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the three persons of the Trinity. This is a mystery in the Old Testament, but revealed to us in the New so clearly. And we're thankful that you've given us your complete revelation, the, the special word to help us with this. Without the Bible, we would be confused. We would be coming up with all kinds of pagan ideas of our Lord Jesus. And you guide us back to the word. So help us to think clearly, to have good doctrine. In the name of Jesus, amen.